And hallelujah is, is not a particular part of my vocabulary. Hallelujah means praise the Lord, right? So I usually say praise the Lord. And this week something happened and just I just came out of my mouth. Hallelujah. Like, yeah, amen. Like, yeah. It, it gives you a little taste of what really happened when Jesus came to earth. We, we celebrate it. I mean, a choir doesn't even do a fraction of what needs to be praised and claimed. I mean, the angels in heaven sang. It's just a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. And we're trying to get there in this series. We just started this Christmas series. Started last week with Eric Jarvis. And we're trying to ask questions. You know, the why questions, the what questions, the how questions. Try and make it part of you know, here's the problem. The problem is your soul. Most of your problems, the Bible teaches clearly, are in your soul, down at the roots. And just like anything else, if you don't deal with the root problem, you don't get better. And we're going to look at some of the passages, some of the most familiar passages in the Bible today about what Jesus does. And we're going to answer the question, what did Jesus come to do? And you need to answer that personally. What did he do for me? What did he come to do for me? Is he doing it for me? It's really down in your soul. Like, are you really? He said he came to be the Savior. Oh, well, is he saving you? Is he really saving you? I mean, in your life, like in your marriage. In your finances, in your in your thought life, in your prayer life, in your in your feelings, are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you happy? Are you is he saving you? Are you experiencing salvation? So when we ask the question, "What did Jesus come to do?" We're trying to answer it in a very personal way, as well as a theological, biblical way. So what I want to do right now is pray with you about that. Would you bow with me, Lord? I pray for everybody here. Just saw this beautiful song saying, heard it with our ears, our hearts leap for joy because we all know in our soul, boy, do we need help. A Savior came? Hallelujah. Amen. And we need these things. Something in our soul is often missing. Even, even knowing the gospel truth sometimes, it's like, yeah, but we don't live it out. Oh God, I pray that today would be a change for everyone listening. We would change our opinion, change our attitude. There'd be a change, not by us, but by you, changing our soul, saving us. May the salvation we sing about be ours, ours, claimed by us, lived by us, felt by us, thought by us. God help us. God help us all. Understand the glory and the grace and the power and the love we just sang about. So I pray that for everybody listening here, help them, help me, help us understand the truth we so joyously sing about, Jesus coming to earth for us. I ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. Okay, the question we're trying to answer is this, what did Jesus come to do, okay? The Bible has many answers to that question. It's such a big answer that it defines it in a numerous uh, ways. It puts it like this. What did Jesus come to do? Well, one passage says he came to be a ransom for many. Another passage says he came to reveal the Father. Another passage says he came to preach the good news. Another one says uh, uh, to be the will, to do the will of the Father. And another one says to testify to the truth. 
to destroy Satan's power, passage says, or to fulfill the law and the prophets, to give us life, to atone for our sins, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to bring judgment, uh, to call sinners to himself, and on and on. There's 25 different statements because the, the, the meaning of Jesus coming to earth is so pregnant, so full of meaning. It has to be said a whole bunch of different ways. Well, if you added them all up like figures and then drew a line and said, okay, what's the sum total? Here would be the sum total. John 3, 17. Right after John 3, 16 is John 3, 17. And it reads like this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That kind of like sums it all up. All of the things Jesus came for can be summed up in one statement. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Key word, saved through him. What we need to do is understand that saving part. How, how does that work out, not just for eternity, but right, right now? I've tried to put down what's called the big idea of the sermon. Jesus came to save the world. Okay, what does that mean? And, and how does that work in your life and in my life, in practical terms? What does that look like? Let me tell you a story. In fact, it's kind of the story of John chapter 3. It's the context. It's a true story. One time there's this religious man, he's actually a rabbi, and he's older than Jesus. His name is Nick, Nicodemus. And Nick hears Jesus talking. To him, Jesus is just a young, an up-and-coming rabbi. He's an older rabbi. But he's intrigued by Jesus' statements. He's intrigued by Jesus' teaching. It attracts him. Like, what, what does he mean here? It confuses him. So he, he hears the debates of other rabbis and other theological thinkers and people, disp- some hate Jesus, some like Jesus, and he's like, I'm trying to figure it out. So he decides, you know, I'm going to go talk to myself. So he doesn't want to go publicly because he's afraid of how he'd be ridiculed by his comrades. So he sneaks in to see Jesus at night. That's what the scripture tells us at the beginning of John 3, you know, where this text comes from. He sneaks in to see Jesus. Jesus, I just need to talk to you about some of the things you've been teaching. I have some confusing things. I have some questions. And his question is just the question we're asking. What did you come here for? What are you doing? What are you saying? I get a little confused by some of the things you're saying. So he's asking Jesus this question. And it's like Jesus just puts his hand up and says, Stop right there, Nick. You know what the problem is, Nicodemus? You don't understand because you are not born again. And you could just hear this old rabbi going, there you go again. Born again. What in the world are you talking about? You keep using these funny lingos, these funny languages, talking about things like that. I don't understand. What do you mean born again? I got to go back on my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, no. No, Nick. You keep trying to answer, if you do these laws, if you do these rituals, if you have these sacrifices, something you do on the outside changes you on the inside. I'm saying, no, 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 no. Something has to happen on your inside to change your outside. What's wrong with you is in your soul, Nick. What's wrong with you is in your heart. And you know, that's still true today. What's wrong with all humanity? What's wrong with the entire world? It's in the human heart. That's what the scripture is trying to say. So he's saying, Nick, you got to go back and be born again. I'm talking about you were born physically, and you now need to be born spiritually. There's a whole new start, and I can give you that. Oh, 
Nick's confused by that. He's thinking that through. In fact, as we read this through, it's like Nicodemus was looking for human dimensions, a proof or arguments. But what theologians now call regeneration is what Jesus is saying he's lacking. No, something needs to be regenerated in your heart that changes how you view everything else and how you see God and how you see me and everything else. So Jesus is saying, that's why you don't understand it. You're not regenerated. You need to be regenerated. This summer, I went on a prayer spiritual retreat thing. I have a friend up in Connecticut. He says, oh, go to this cool place out on this little island just off the shore of Connecticut, and I want you to go there because they'll let you have a room and pray, and they'll make you meals. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You don't have to make your meals. You just go there. Then you can go back and study and go back and pray. I loved it. I loved it. I had a great time. So I go there. And I go to my first meal that they were making, and they made great meals, but it's just a small little lunchroom, not a big round. You know, maybe, you know, those big round tables, there's probably four of them in there. So I go there, and uh, there's a seat available when I get there, sitting next to this lady who looks like she's a few years older than me, white hair and everything. And um, so I sit down next to her, and she's a sweet lady, and we get talking about things. And I, she says, what are you here for? I said, I'm here just to pray and read my Bible and think and communicate with the Lord and spend some time closer to the Lord. She goes, okay, okay. And that's kind of, I said, what are you here for? Kind of the same thing. And so she comes from a, a form of Christianity that a lot, a lot more rituals and a lot more um, ceremony and a lot more s- different things that, that than we evangelicals do. And just she feels like she's kind of got to do these things like an outside in to change, to be good, to earn your right to God. And then as we talk some talk further, she says, you know what? In the last several years, I've become convinced something needs to happen in your heart. Something needs to change in your soul. It's like you need to, and she's describing this. So I tell her the whole conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. And I said, you know what the Bible calls that? They call that being born again. She's born again. I said, yeah, that's in the Bible, you know. She didn't know that. This is in the Bible, John chapter 3. Born again, regeneration. Something has to happen to you. Not just you have to do something to be saved. You have to be saved. Something happens inside of you. You're regenerated. Oh, my goodness, she said. That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. That happened to me. So here's a lady that was born again. Didn't even know she was born again. Like, I'm trying to tell her. That's what happened. And Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus, that's what needs to happen. Has it happened to you? Are you born again? Has, it, has something happened in your heart? So here's this little lady trying to seek God and realizing, I can't do it. I can't do it. Here's Nicodemus going, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Jesus said, well, let's stop. You've you got to be born again. You can't, you can't do it. All right. It's like the first step is to realize you can't do it. I've got to be born again. Only Jesus does that. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus uses this passage of Scripture in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he says these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The whole purpose of this, I mean, what could be clearer? What could be simpler than this? That's why I like to use this passage to simplify and clarify. And I, today, I'm hoping I can simplify and clarify it for you to the place where you can have a new kind of belief, a new kind of 
born again experience. As I, as I talk with different people over the last 40 years of my life in ministry, I'm like, you know, it seems like some people need to be born again, again. Because it's like you were and you are. Now, I know this isn't theologically correct because you're born again only once, but it's like you need to grab a hold of that. I, I, the, the Bible, the Apostle Paul says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. In other words, yeah, this is something you get saved, but then you work it into your life. It becomes a part of who you are. So you're, you can say, I'm saved, going to heaven. But, you know, that salvation needs to work its way into my marriage, into my work, into my thinking and conflicts with the kids, and into what I'm dealing with at home, and what I'm feeling in, in my my. My, my soul, my depression. Yeah, yeah, being saved. Well, let's look at it. Point one. Jesus came to reveal God's love for us. That's what it says in John 3.16. starts out with that. For God so loved the world. Do you understand? That's Jesus' definition of the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. Now, what is so good about the good news? We're supposed to go tell everybody in the world now uh, the good news. What's so good about it? Well, let me try and define it for you. Um, the first thing is this. It's that God so loved the world is the best explanation as to why you and me breathe air, why you even exist in the first place. Because God in the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this perfect love amongst themselves, three persons, one being, all together, perfect unity. And, and they, they had love, perfect love. And, and this God had, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, decide, you know what we need to do? We need to make an earth and a world. And then the highest form of our creation needs to be something like a, a human being made in the image of God. He can communicate. He can love like us. We will love him. We will love her. That's what we'll do. It's the whole reason we exist. That's what Jesus said. For God so loved the world. It's why he made you. It's why we're here. For God so loves the world. The best explanation for why we even exist. You know, um, it doesn't always seem like that, does it? You know, we, we, we all believe God loves us. And we all want to be loved, right? Accepted, cared for, appreciated, acknowledged, all those things are love. We, we want to be loved. And so you read this. For God so loved the world, you go, wow, that's great. That's what I wanted, right? That's all I wanted. God? God loves me? Wonderful. But let's be honest. Does that look like it? Come on. For God so loved the world, disease all over the world. For God so loved the world, wars all over the world. For God so loved the world, people hating each other, politicians fighting, women and men getting divorced, little children having diseases, suffering and dying. For God so loved the world, does it look like, I mean, honest to God, it doesn't look like it, does it? For God so loved the world? Really? It doesn't seem to feel like that to me. I've even had people say that to me. I said, but look at what it goes on to say. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God loves a world that's in disaster. God loves a world that's in peril. God loves a world that's dying. God loves a world that's suffering disease. God loves the world and knows the only answer is sacrifice. He proved it. 
For God so loved the world, he proved it. Because love in a sinful world always has to do one thing, sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, you don't really love. That can be said to every husband and every wife, every child and every parent. Every relationship, without sacrifice, there's no love. So God says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, he sacrifices that's how we know he loves us. So he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, which, which if we had more time, I'd get into this only begotten idea. This God's only son just means his one and only. God would do that. So he proves it. He proves the truth, the, the, the bizarre truth that we sing about in that chorus. God loves us. Hallelujah. Amen. And he sacrifices his son for us. Hallelujah. Amen. And all I have to do is believe in him. And I can have this connection. I can be set free from the peril and the disease and the problems and have everlasting life. Yes, yes. That's what it's all saying here. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? We know he loves us by his sacrifice. I don't know. Do we really grasp that? Uh, I was reading a book the other day. This author says... uh, he gives an analogy. He says, suppose I had a, a group of seven-year-olds. That'd be like, what, first graders, second graders? You know, and I say to them, hey, you know what? I want you to write me an essay. Write me an essay about love and marriage. Somebody's laughing there because it would be laughable, wouldn't it? I mean, so this seven-year-old hands in a paper. It might be sweet. It might be touching. It might be kind of cute. But come on. It's going to be like, how far from reality? For those of us, I've been, next week it'll be like 44 years I've been married. Yeah, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, what, what would they know? I wonder, and that's what this author was saying, I wonder how closely we are to understanding the love of God. For God so loved the world. Yeah, we write our little essay, we think it through. Have we really delved into that? Have we really felt that? Do we live that? Do we experience that? Oh, that's what happens when you say, and you take a covenant vow with your wife or your husband, and now you got to live it out. Now it's an experience of the love that gets deeper and deeper with yours is the way it's supposed to be. So it's an absolute connection. Well, isn't that what it means to work out your salvation with God? You start experiencing your savedness. You start experiencing the love of God. You start feeling it. You, you walk it through. You're, you're seeing it in every aspect of your life. That, that, that's what I think we need to understand in John three sixteen. In a book I was reading by... Tim Keller with our small group we were reading through this book last year it's called Jesus the King and in here he talks about how often we're not so concerned about experiencing God's love what we really really want is just be happy he says but that's often very difficult in a fallen world On January 7, 2007, the New York Times Magazine read an interesting article called Happiness 101. It described positive psychology, a branch of psychology that seeks to take a scientific empirical approach to what makes people happy. Researchers in this field have found that if you focus on doing and getting things that give you pleasure, it does not lead to happiness. Really? No. But it actually produces, as one researcher calls it, hedonic treadmill from hedonism. It's just get on this hedonic treadmill, they call it. You become addicted to pleasure. 
and your need for pleasure and your need to get another fix of pleasure just keeps growing. And we thought that was just drug addicts. You have to do more and more and more and you're never satisfied, never really happy. According to the article, scientific studies have shown that the best way to increase your happiness is actually to do the opposite, to become selfless, to become a kind person, doing acts of kindness, pouring yourself out for the needy people around you. The main researcher's goal was to show that there are ways of living that lead to a better outcome. Some of these better outcomes were close relationships, loving relationships, a sense of well-being, meaning and purpose in your life. But the thing that gets in the way often is our quest for happiness, which we put above our quest for love. Like the love of God. Folks, this happens to Christians too. We say we're born again. We say we're a Christian. We love Jesus. But, you know, when push comes to shove, I just want to be happy. So we keep pursuing happiness, just like anybody else in the world. And that becomes above experiencing, for God so loved the world. And we don't experience that so much. But we're on this hedonic treadmill, trying to get it, trying to get it. And it never happens, and we're always dissatisfied. Oh, my. Is that descriptive or what? It leads me to the second point. Look, Look at the second point. Jesus came to expose our bondage to sin. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why would he do that? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why do you have to give his son? Because the thing that separates us from God is our own sinfulness. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin, chapter 5, he says, is death. Separation from God. That, that's where it all leads to. Sin in the Bible is, is, is a word that describes rebellion, betrayal, independence from God. Betrayal because he made us, and then we don't want him. It, it's a concept that really talks about God avoidance. I don't know if you ever thought of it this way, but here's, 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 here's a truth that Jesus is trying to get at here, all the Bible's trying to get at, that you've got to get in your little cranium and hold it out and down into your heart. Here it is. All the problems in the world. Heard about a volcano in New Zealand this week, right? All the volcanoes, all the earthquakes, all the tornadoes, all the natural disasters, all of the diseases of cancer, heart disease, other problems, weird diseases, all of the wars, all of the depression. All the horrible things that happened in the world all started, according to the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve picked off the forbidden tree. Well, no, even before that, it started in their heart. When Adam and Eve decided to be independent from God, rebellious against God, God avoidance, and picked off the tree. The picking off the tree was just symbolic of what was happening in their hearts. Now, do you understand? All these problems, the Bible tells us, all of them, natural disasters, disease, everything, all started that moment where? In the human heart. Do you understand that? That's the heart. God says the heart of the problem, the core issue, is the heart of human beings. So God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for what happened in the human heart. So the focus of God's attention is to expose, well, the real problem is not the diseases. The real problem is not the nature, natural. It's not the environment. 
It's not the people. It's not wars. It's not dictators. The real problem is in every single human in their heart. There's evil there. There's sin there. There's murder. There's awful stuff in your heart and mind. And to be saved is to be saved from that. In your personal life, in your future, all your past forgiven. That's what the cross means. That's what Jesus came to do. Uh, That's why this is so spectacular. Because Jesus just exposes the problem. Let me just say this. I get so sick of hearing this, and you hear it so much in our day and age. It's like it's like a, a slogan in our culture. Oh, oh, you know what you need to do? You just need to follow your heart. Oh, my gosh. Don't do that, I'd say. Don't do that, for heaven's sakes. If the core issue of all problems in the world started in the human heart, and you're going to follow the human heart, watch out. You're headed to hell. You're headed to disaster. You're going to really screw up your life now. Following your heart is really, really bad advice. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19, or 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's right. You need a saved heart. You need a redeemed heart. You need a transformed heart. Those are the words the scriptures use. You need to work out your salvation. Your heart needs to be transformed and changed. For heaven's sakes, don't just follow it. It's the primrose path to destruction. You're going to bring even more pain into your life. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Savior. Follow Jesus, the one who can redeem the heart. You need to be born again. If you can follow a born-again heart, that's a lot better than following your heart. Your heart needs to be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, that's the problem, Nick. Nick, the... You're missing the whole point. You think you can reform yourself. You think you can be religious and that'll work. It won't work, Nick. No, it's deeper the issue than that. You're, you're not even picking up on the, the, the cause. The real problem is hearts. And only, only hope for our human heart is redemption, salvation, sanctification, the change that only God can bring. Belief. That's what he says it comes down to. Jesus came to expose this problem and then to solve it, saying the answer would be belief. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes, key word in the whole passage, believes, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life, wow. This week, you know, on Wednesdays, I often meet with a group of pastors in this area, and we have a prayer meeting together for just an hour. And then we go on our way. So there's a lot of great pastors around here. Good churches. Fantastic. We live in a, we're privileged to live in a great area. Well, last Wednesday, one of the pastors there shared about a funeral he went to. And he says, it was just so great. He says, this pastor, he wasn't preaching it. He was talking about, yeah, pastors talk about funerals. I mean, what else we got to talk about? So we're talking about that. I know it sounds kind of pathetic, but we were doing that. And... Um, he says it was so cool. He said he made such a great presentation how we live between two worlds. There's the sinful world dominated by disease and heartache and pain. And as pastors, sometimes we're dealing with that so much. He says, but we have a hope of a world to come. 
For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or I love the old King James, everlasting life. It's like, yeah, it can be mine. Yeah, but He says we live between two worlds. We're not there yet. We're still here now. How can this saving come to us so we can experience it and what we're going to be someday? Save, save, save. But we are saved now too. And He says He was just showing. And He said, you know, this person who who has died that we're celebrating their life here today, they're just a few minutes ahead of us. That's all. We're all going there. They're just a few minutes ahead. Yeah, just a few minutes. And we'll be there. He says, now the, the key is to live it now. Living saved. I was reading another book down here somewhere. Here we go, by Tim Keller, a little book. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's, it's, it's a, a book about humility, which is what self-forgetfulness forgetfulness is about. But anyway, in here he's talking about this idea of um, how sin tends to dominate us from the inside. Keeps us proud instead of humble. Keeps us away from God and a distance from God. Keeps us from not experiencing the salvation that's ours. Not really being like a born-again person in all aspects of our life. And he gives an illustration of somebody that's very unexpected. He gives an illustration from the life of Madonna. When we try and follow our heart, it leaves us empty, painful, busy, fatigued, and lost. Let me give you a perfect example of this. I'm not trying to lift her up as being any worse than any other, the rest of us. She actually shows a tremendous amount of self-awareness And I have a lot of admiration for her. But if you want a perfect example of what I'm talking about, here's an excerpt from an interview with Madonna in Vogue magazine some time ago, where she's talking about her career, and she says this. She says, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. And I want to go, oh, Madonna, you poor thing. Remember that treadmill of hedonism that was talked about in the other article? She's stuck in it. She's following her heart. She's trying to prove herself and find her identity in what she does. It'll never work. That's what Jesus saw in Nicodemus. He says, Nick, it'll never work. You've got to be born again, Nick. You've got to have your heart changed. Something needs to happen to you. You can't do it. You have to to ask God to make Jesus your Savior. It changes you from the inside out. It's not an outside-in thing. And here's poor Madonna trying to... For God so loved Madonna, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth of what I'm trying to say to you. That leads me to my third point. Jesus came to bridge the gap between God and us. In John 3.17, which we read earlier, it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, key word, saved, through him. 
God feels that Madonna and every single other human being that's ever walked the planet Earth was worth the sacrifice of his son. Even if it was just them that existed, God believes every human being is worth it. Worth the death of Jesus. Worth the sacrifice of the relationship with Jesus so that that these people could have a relationship with God. God in the Godhead decided love was so powerful, so compelling, so attractive. He's so attracted to people, even in their sinful state, even in their ugliness and their evil. He sees right down to the heart and he saw it with Adam and he saw it with Eve and he said, you know what I need to do? Provide a savior. That's what Jesus is. It's so beautiful. Let Let me put it in a... In, in, in a chart, mankind on the left, God on the right, and in between is a gap. That's the best I can describe. There's this gap. And what's in that gap? Sin. And it keeps us from God. So try as you will to build up your ego. Try as you will to be happy. Try as you will to somehow get identity from your life and your accomplishments. You can't. You keep falling. So try as you will, even religiously, to get to God. You can't. Even that lady I was talking to in the prayer thing, she's saying, I can't do it, but something had to happen inside. That's right. That's the next chart. Jesus is the only way to bridge the gap. He bridges the gap between mankind and God. Only Jesus can can unite us to him because only Jesus can get to our heart. Only Jesus can forgive us of our sins by, by paying the penalty for him for God so that God can have a relationship with us again. Us unholy people, us unrighteous people, us sinful hearted people can actually be born again. It's a beautiful thing. God did not send his son into the world to damn the world, condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Yeah, amen is right. He bridges the gap. God loves the world so much. You know, I believe God loves the whole world, like it says here. I mean, that's why I believe it, because the Bible says it. And I can show you several passages that even say Jesus died for the sins of the world. Not just Christians, sins of the world. Well, then how come the whole world's not saved, you'd say? Because whoever believes in him, belief is the key. The thing to be born again is believing in Jesus. The thing that happens in your life only happens, the the comprehension, the, the assimilation, the soaking in the salvation only happens through belief. It's the key to making it real in your life. Some call it efficacious grace. In other words, there's grace toward everybody, but it only becomes effective when you believe him, trust him. Okay. We showed it on the charts. We showed it and everything. We went through examples. I read about Madonna. Let me ask you a question. You're probably sitting there. I bet you 90% of the people out here sitting there going, okay, Marty, I already knew that. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the basic message. I've been hearing that since I was 10. I know, I know. Well, then let me ask you a question. Since you know it so well, why are you so afraid to trust God? With your trial, with your marriage, with your money, with your depression, with your anger, with your fears. You really believe God loves you that much, but you don't believe it? You're talking out both sides of your mouth here. Do you really believe it? If you do, why, do you, why are you so afraid of him? Why are you so afraid to trust him? 
I mean, that's the obvious question here. If this is so real to you, so true to you, then why don't you just have joy all the time? You're, you're jumping for joy because you're so happy, like you're going to heaven and this is so fast. I'm saved. Hey, what I got to worry about? I don't see you acting like that. You don't talk like that. Well, and I go, well, sounds to me like you really don't believe it. Looks to me like you really don't believe it. Your priorities, you're still chasing, you're on the hedonic treadmill. Sounds to me like you're just still chasing happiness. You're just like Madonna. You keep trying to prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. It's like, you're no different. What do you mean you believe it? Seriously, that's the question you got to ask yourself right now. Do you really believe this? If belief is the key to making this savedness really happen in my life, if belief is the key to being born again, I'm asking you, are you really? Where's the life showing? Where, where's the word showing? Where's the attitudes and the feeling? Maybe you need to be born again, again. And what I mean by that is that come to grips with the reality of what God's teaching. Let me let me read to you. We'll close this letter. Let me read to you an example. Some time ago, this lady, Tamara Roche, sent me this letter. I'll jump in the middle of it here. I'll tell you this. I'll give you context. Not long before she wrote me this, uh, her 35-year-old son tragically died. She wrote this. Within weeks of Adam's death, I began questioning the reality of God. I never blamed God. I wasn't even angry with God. Ironically, I would talk to the Lord every day about my doubts about his existence. (laughs) Yeah, that's how confused we get sometimes in our soul, isn't it? I had accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 12 years old. And, but the death of my son rocked my world down to the very core. The more I pushed at God, the tighter he held me. I felt his presence in a deeper way than I ever had before. God has given me an understanding that I could have never had on my own. One day, while talking to Jesus, I cried out that October 15th was the worst day of my life. And he let me know that it was actually Adam's best day. My son got to meet the Lord that day. And he was finally free from his mental and physical pain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In my heart, and all my heartache, I asked the Lord, what was the point of me living on this earth? Anybody? Well, I didn't get an answer that day. But through my daily contact with him, he's helped me understand that the purpose of our journey here on this earth is to love him. Oh, didn't Jesus say that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our love pours out on us from Jesus and then through us to others. I will always miss Adam, but I choose to celebrate life with my loved ones still here with me now. I look forward to the reunion I will have with my beloved ones who are now a few minutes ahead of me in paradise. And I will praise the Lord always. (laughs) I think she was born again again. I think something happened in her. A new decision, a new understanding of reality, a new comprehension of really accepting what the Word of God says. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him 
won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And that everlastingness, that saved part. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's, I, want to, I want to pray with you, and I want you to pray that you'd be saved. I want you to pray that you'd be born again. Maybe not for the first time. Maybe it is for the first time. If it is, God bless you. That's fantastic. But to come to the understanding, come to the reality, come to the real core belief, maybe even after a test like Tamara went through. Maybe you've been tested again. She got so tested, she's like, I don't even know if you're there. That shaking caused her to go to a whole new level. Is that happening to you, maybe? With all your doubts, all your questions, you're like, oh, I don't even know what I believe anymore. Well, <laughs> this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Best thing that ever happened to Tamara, she's saying. Brings you to a whole new place of real belief. So bow your heads. I want to pray about that. Bow your head, please. Seek the Lord. God, as much as we can, in our hearts, that always tend to fall back into sinful patterns, we're asking you, please, please forgive us. Thank you for Jesus being sent and sacrificed for you by you for us. Oh, my Lord, thank you. You've paid the penalty, but I don't experience the payment sometime. You've set me free, but I don't experience the freedom, freedom sometime. You've delivered me from evil, but the evil keeps overcoming me. The bad patterns, the selfish behavior. Oh, Lord, forgive me, please. You see, repentance is the key to salvation. It's the key to experiencing it, coming back over and over and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. i, I got to change this. My attitude's poor in my marriage. My, my, my feelings are wrong toward these other things I allow to take me over. I keep trying to prove myself, and it's in vain. So I ask your forgiveness, and I want to accept Jesus as my Savior again. I want to reaffirm it today. Maybe that's what you need to do, reaffirm. It's not absolutely being born again again. It's just coming to the reality of your being a born again. You're saved. So, Lord, I claim my salvation. I claim my born-againness. I claim that I will be in eternity with Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name. For what you're going to do from here on to change me and my heart, the core of all my problems. You've saved me from them. And even in the midst of my trials, even in the midst of my temptations, you told me, you tell me, I've overcome them. Be saved in me from them. Oh, Father, we come before you for salvation, now and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.